Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Hello, this episode's guest is Jane Birch. Jane Birch is the author of Discovering the Word of Wisdom, Surprising Insights from a Whole Food, Plant-Based Perspective, released in 2013. She graduated from Brigham Young University with a bachelor's in history and a PhD in instructional science. She currently serves as assistant director for faculty development at the BYU Faculty Center. Her accomplishments include creating BYU's premier faculty development program for new faculty, which she directed for 15 years. Her current work includes assisting BYU faculty in combining religious faith with academic discipline. Her academic publications and presentations cover a variety of topics primarily related to faculty development. She is the author of an article in The Interpreter entitled Questioning the Comma in Verse 13 of the Word of Wisdom. Welcome, Jane Birch. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate you coming on. So your current work with BYU is combining religious faith with academic discipline and research. It seems that this is an effort. What are some of the hurdles that hinder developing faith and academic knowledge at the same time? I talk about in my professional work at Brigham Young University. Yes. Sure. That's a fabulous job, by the way. I bet. I think probably the main thing that hinders is that um, the rest of the world is so secularized. And the faculty we hire, they're excellent people. They have strong testimonies. Uh, I just love these individuals. But, of course, uh, they've been out there getting their PhDs in very secular <laughs> institutions. Yes. And studying disciplines and the best research in the world does not usually include gospel insights or um, implications based on our faith in God or knowledge of God or knowledge of the plan of salvation. So that's the way they've been culturalized. That's their training. And so to then switch and come to BYU and try to think about, well, what are gospel implications of my discipline can be a little bit of a challenge, but I think our faculty do a good job of rising to that challenge. We're actually finding, interestingly enough, that um, it's not actually integration of the content that's most significant. Mm. It's who they are as people ah. and the kind of person they um, come across to as to students and how they treat the students. Those factors are a lot more significant, but have a lot of fun with my job, and it's been very interesting over the years. Well, and the fact that you've been doing it for 15 years shows that it's a continual effort. That yes. With new faculty, this is something that isn't changing in the world, that, that, that it's still around. Oh, well, we keep getting new be. faculty. Yeah. I assume that there's some kind of need for oversight or implementation of some kind of mechanism, especially at a school like BYU, to help ensure or give checks and balances to make sure that uh, that this new individual or perhaps even their students to a certain extent are um, safeguarded against mistakes or slip-ups or gross misinformation. Is there something like that at BYU then? Absolutely. Uh, is that they, you? It is not me. Oh, thank okay. goodness. <laughs> no, BYU has a very long, extended, evolved hiring process. Mm. Each faculty member is carefully reviewed up to this highest level, which would include uh, our executive board, first presidency of the church, members of the quorum of the 12 apostles, each person is approved at that level. And so we carefully hire people. And then as Joe Smith would say, we teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. <laughs> we, the founding directive to BYU is to teach nothing, not even the alphabet or the multiplication tables without the spirit of God. So our faculty, uh, have the spirit of God. And that's what we encourage them to use as they're thinking about how to 
rise to all the challenges that they have to manage. Yeah. See, I never knew that the first presidency and the apostles were involved in the hiring of these teachers. That's pretty impressive. That's new information to me. Well, you spent a lot of time writing on instructional sciences, putting together faculties and, and making those work. So what prompted you to say, I need to write about the Word of Wisdom? That is a great question, Nick. I had no intention of ever being so interested in Doctrine and Covenants 89 <laughs> or in the Word of Wisdom. I have no particular interest in nutrition or health, but something interesting happened to me in 2011. I woke up early one Saturday morning and happened to catch a preview for a show on CNN called The Last Heart Attack. It was about a diet that is literally can make one heart attack proof. Interesting. Go yes, on. I thought so too. Now, <laughs> hopefully like you, I had no risk factor for heart disease. I was experiencing no health issue that could be addressed by diet. But I did know that heart disease is the number one killer in America. And it kind of stunned me to think that this number one killer could be completely halted by eating proper diet. Okay. And I just thought to myself, I need to learn more about this diet. It's a pretty impressive claim. It is pretty impressive. What really stunned me, Nick, was as I researched it that day, it was not just heart disease. It was diabetes. It was stroke. It was hypertension. It was many cancers. Now, I knew that eating properly would reduce my chances of getting these diseases. Sure. But when I learned that it would completely eliminate my chance of getting most of these diseases, the light bulb went off. And I thought, you know... I think I could eat it's a little worth different. Looking at. It's worth looking at. <laughs> I have to tell you, something happened to me that day. I decided I want to eat this way. It's a whole food, plant-based diet, whole food, very little, no processed food, plant-based, no animal foods. And up to this point— No animal foods or no animal products even? None that come from animals, mainly meat, dairy, eggs. Okay. So now, veganism, essentially? Essentially, yes. Okay. Now, up to this point— I had always loved every type of processed food and every type of animal foods. I, people who were vegetarian, vegan, I had the greatest pity for them. <laughs> they're missing out on some wonderful flavors. But once I realized that eating a different way would give me dramatically better health, I'm not just talking a little bit better. Even though I had good health at the time, I just could see, you know, the tunnel ahead of me chronic disease, it seems almost inevitable. I thought, you know, I'd really rather enjoy different foods and have better health. What would it hurt me? And I have to tell you, another thing that was in the back of my mind as I researched this, I kept thinking, Doctrine and Covenants 89, the Word of Wisdom, somehow this resonates with this. And when I opened up Section 89 and I read, reread those verses, they popped out at me in a way that they never had before. Kind of dovetailed with that CNN story. Actually, dovetailed perfectly. <laughs> and um, I think, I really think this is interesting about a lot of different scriptures. In fact, I mentioned to you that um, something that's become more important to me is a particular article of faith. And since this it's podcast... Is the Articles of Faith? That's right. I thought I'd read it. <laughs> this is uh, Articles of Faith 9. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, when I had read that article of faith before, I always pictured some spectacular new revelations. Right. Another book of Mormon, even. Well, the sealed portions of the Book sure, of Mormon, right? Yeah. The the lost tribes coming with their scriptures, uh, fresh revelations, right? Which it still could be. It could. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. 
But would I not expected that some of those revelations might be found right in the scriptures that I was fami- that I've been familiar with my entire life. Yeah. And that was my experience that day as I reread section 89 of the Word of Wisdom. Things were revealed to me that had always been there. I'd read it many times. I was very familiar with it. But suddenly I saw them in a new light. You know, we're talking about DNC 89, but I really think, Nick, that this process applies to all of Scripture. It is amazing what will be revealed in Scripture if we are very open and willing to live the truths that come to us. Or if we change our life in accordance with the truths, and suddenly those truths pop out at us. I think for most of us, and I'd read those sections before, eat meat sparingly. Well, nobody does that, so it can't really mean that. <laughs> Only in times of winter, cold, and famine can't mean that. Nobody does that. Our prophet doesn't do that. So it didn't really strike me as being really important. But once I realized that this was a, an important key to our good health and to receiving the full blessings of the Word of Wisdom— I thought, well, there it is. I could have, I could have been watching all along, but um, I didn't pay attention because it was easy to dismiss it. Anyways, I started to naturally share my enthusiasm for the diet. I was sure. a great whole food, plant-based missionary and <laughs> enjoying sharing with you know, all my friends and family. You have a green and tag instead of a, <laughs> a black name tag, right? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. And uh, I started writing. And mostly just for friends and, and family. But the more I wrote, the more interesting it was. And kept having conversations with people. And, of course, people um, would bring up to me sometimes some alternative interpretations of some mm. verses in DNC 89. Of course, I found them on the Internet. They're all over the Internet. <laughs> Love the Internet. So um, the one that, of course, um, this article that we're talking about today is about DNC 8913. Right. And the evolution of this was simply a few conversations I had At BYU, I work with mostly faculty, and in conversations about the meaning of that verse, I discovered that some people who actually teach Doctrine and Covenants and others on campus use this, what I'm now calling the errant comma theory, to explain the meaning of DNC 8913. Um, I'd heard this before, and it never struck me as being particularly a valid argument, but I thought, I'd like to look into this, give it a fair view. Um, I'm not afraid of the truth, and whatever it is, I'd like to understand it. Well, let's go ahead and actually read uh, verse 13 in DNC 89. You have it there. Let's let's put it on the record so that we have something uh, in front of us that we're dealing with. So why don't you go ahead and read that out loud? Excellent. I think I'll start with verse 12, if you don't mind. Yeah, the, go ahead. That, that gives the context there. Yea, flesh also of beasts and of the fowls of the air, I, the Lord, have ordained for the use of man with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly. And it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter or of cold or famine. Okay. And even your inflection can imply different meanings. So, all right. So you, you venture to discuss what uh, what might seem like to some people a pretty petty thing, maybe a small thing to kind of quibble about. But in this verse, it, there is quite a different meaning behind the use of this comma. And you, you, you mentioned this errant comma theory, but which one are you talking about is the comma in question? What is the significant one in which most of your article seems to rest? Very good. And let me just emphasize, I absolutely agree with you. I think this is a non-issue. <laughs> okay. uh, honestly, I, I, I don't know. Well, I do. I, I have some hint about why this became so popular. I just think people... Well, it's um, not a non-issue because it's still alive. It, it is, has been alive for years. It is very much alive, 
But it should be, in my opinion, a non-issue. But anyway, so if anyone wants to say this is a quibble, this is not important, I absolutely agree. (laughs) But it is interesting that it's become so popular. But the comma that we're talking about, and it is pleasing to me that they should not be used, comma, only in times of winter or of cold or of famine. That comma that was... Between used and only. Between used and only was actually not in this verse of Scripture until the 1921 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. And your, your, I guess, assertion or your understanding that that was James Talmadge that advocated that that comma should be there? No, we actually do not know that. Okay. It is the best assumption given the evidence. Right. He was the one that did all the careful um, proof texting of the, doc, the Book of Mormon, the new edition of the Book of Mormon that was completed in 1920, just before this one was worked on. And so we would assume that he would be entrusted to do this work for the 1921 Doctrine and Covenants, but we actually don't know that for sure. Certainly he's involved. He was one of the committee members okay. who was involved in changing Doctrine and Covenants. But some prominent um, scholars have even suggested that it was not one of the committee members at all, that actually it was a mistake possibly inserted by the printer. And so yeah. that's one of the things that I address in my article as well. And you actually go to, uh, you discuss this a little bit with, or at least you've done some research with Royal Skousen. And who who also has seemed to go over the scriptures with with a very 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 fine tooth comb. He had some things to say about this this same verse too. Correct. That is correct. Actually, um, Royal Skousen came out with an article in BYU Studies in 1986. I really think his clarification of the word only. It's pretty that, germane to the discussion. It is, and I think it actually resolved it back in. 1986, but since we're still discussing it today. <laughs> Resolved is very subjective. That's right. He, he just talks about simply, and I think most people understand that, that over time, um, our usage of words change naturally. And sometimes this creates problems for us because we're reading often old text in the scriptures. Obviously, when we talk about the Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, but even Doctrine and Covenants, words can change in meaning. And so he addresses um, the use of the word only specifically in D&C 8913, and he discusses how earlier um, that the word only um, more, more often meant except. So, in other words, in earlier times, another way this verse could have been written was, it is pleasing to me that they should not be used except in times of winter or of cold and famine or famine. The word except there would make this very clear. Because it's the word only and because our understanding of the word only is changed. So for example, we often think of only meaning exclusively without the comma. Some people would interpret this to mean and is pleasing it to me that should not be used only in times of winter, cold and famine. Or in other words, don't use it just in those times. Don't use it exclusively in those times, but use it in other times as well. Can you see how the meaning of the word Absolutely. only can be ambiguous? Yeah. This is true in actually many verses of Scripture. In fact, Royal Skousen is counted 10 times in the Book of Mormon where the word only means the word except. And he noted that in seven of those 10 times, the uh, the printers had inserted the word only to clarify, but in three of them, they had neglected to do that. Hmm. And you can also find that in the Doctrine and Covenants, various places where only means except. But here, um, because the change in the word only, the insertion of the comma before only helps clarify the meaning of the verse, at least to the ears of modern readers. Sure. Okay. Well, English language certainly has its limitations in, in conveying certain messages. Have you actually looked to the interpretations given in other languages of this same verse to see how they talk about it? Yes, I have, actually. And 
I haven't looked at every single one. Well, sure, there's a lot. There's a lot of them. But all the ones that I've looked at, um, they have interpreted it the same way that we interpret it today with the addition of the comma, including Doctrine and Covenants that were translated before 1921. Okay. I even have anecdotal evidence, I guess you'd call it, but from a reputable source talking about uh, translators coming and discussing this with uh, authorities above them when they were doing the Spanish translation, I think in the 1950s, you know, here with the comma or without the comma, it makes a difference. What should we do? And you'll note if you look at the translation that they came out with, they interpreted the same that we would, same way we would interpret it today with the comma. And so consistently, so except. except, yeah. So consistently throughout the church, both in uh, preachings about this uh, particular verse and translations of this verse, how it's been used, it's consistently been used the same way. So it's kind of puzzling as to why this errant comma theory is so popular. You hear it a lot. Because we love our meat. Oh, we do. <laughs> I love meat too. If meat was wholesome and it pleased the Lord that we eat bunches of it, I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> be a meataholic. Well, I guess that that answers or that leads us to the next question. You actually give some quotes from other authorities down through the years talking about this because it clearly was visited and revisited by authorities down through the years. And so you actually have some quotes, some observations from various people through time talking about what in essence might be an interpretation or their interpretation rather on that verse. Do you have a couple that maybe you could share as examples? Maybe I'll just share a couple. Um, The purpose of sharing these is not to suggest that their interpretation or the reasoning behind this verse is necessarily accurate. Um, But just the impressions of the time. The point of sharing these verses is simply to state that before 1921, all of the educated, literate church members, church leaders who address the question, all interpreted the verse the same way. That is the way that we interpret it today with the, with, with the comma, okay. interpreting the word only to mean except. I'll just start with the very earliest quote that I have here. This is in 1842, Hiram Smith, who is, of course, a patriarch to the church, he said, Let men attend to these instructions. Let them use the things ordained of God. Let them be sparing of the life of animals. It is pleasing, saith the Lord, that flesh be used only in times of winter or of famine. And why to be used in famine? Because all domesticated animals would naturally die and may as well be made use of by man as not. Hmm. And so that starts, you know, a series of quotations that I have here, um, all the way from that to Apostle Heber C. Kimball, President Brigham Young, who said, flesh should be used sparingly in famine and in cold. Apostle George Q. Cannon, and down to 1895, Apostle Lorenzo Snow, who's then president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, he stated, unless famine or extreme cold is upon us, we should refrain from the use of meat. Now, again, my point here was simply to point out, essentially, during the first 100 years after 1833, there was great consensus in the church as to the meaning of this verse, and it was essentially the same ones that I've been quoting here. Now, why we are to eat, why we are to abstain from meat, or why it is pleasing to the Lord that we only eat meat in times of winter, cold, and famine, that's a whole other question, right. and actually is going to be the source of a second article that I'm going to be bringing out. Excellent. But um, this is a case here, and another point that I make in the paper is that, that there were many church leaders who spoke about the word of wisdom after 1921, who were adult leaders during 1821, 
and they would have had an opportunity to notice the addition of the comma and to comment on how the comma made their previous reading problematic. But apparently, they didn't feel it made their previous reading problematic, and they continued to interpret the verse in the same way. So nobody essentially, um, up till, I'm going to say about the 1960s is the first instance I see where people started to um, put forth the idea that the addition of the comma makes our current reading of this text um, possibly problematic. Okay. Well, I guess to, to answer something on a more personal side, because oftentimes when we study the scriptures and, and even when we quibble over a comma, what ends up happening is we have to look to the life of the person that's doing the interpreting to help maybe get more context on where they're coming from. So you, you claim that you are essentially a vegan. Is that the right way to term it? what you would call the way that you've chosen your diet? It's definitely a vegan diet in one respect, but I don't call it a vegan diet. The reason is because a vegan diet um, excludes all animal food, all animal foods, and then they also don't use any animal products. Primarily... Regardless of diet. Regardless of diet, leather shoes or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but, what I, but a vegan diet can be very, very unhealthy. Okay. Okay. Coke, French fries, this is a vegan diet. <laughs> this is not healthy. I don't think that this is what the Lord meant. You know, the Lord doesn't spell it out. He doesn't use the word caffeine, for example, in, right. in the word wisdom. But we understand that there's a general spirit, principles laid out in doctrine and covenants. And we understand from other scriptures, the sacredness of our body, that our bodies are literally temples of God, places where a member of the Godhead can dwell with us. I think the Lord is very invested in us taking good care of our bodies not just for physical strength so we can do the Lord's work, serve missions, and do other important things, but because how we eat has a dramatic effect on our spirit and our ability to be receptive to the spirit, for example. And so I think that um, taking care of our bodies is very important. What opened my eyes about Doctrine and Covenants is learning about a whole food plant-based diet. Whole food meaning very little or no processed food. And you'll note in DNC 89 verse 10, Again, verily I say unto you, all wholesome herbs, herbs are plants, all wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. Yes, French fries are herbs, you could say. They're plant food. <laughs> plants, yeah. But are they wholesome? <laughs> this is the thing I know. And then again in verse 14, all grain is ordained for the use of man to be the staff of life, the foundation of our diet, wholesome, whole grains. So whole foods, and then plant-based. Again, I feel like Doctrine and Covenants is pointing towards the use of plants. Note that in verse 10, it says, God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use for man, these plant foods. But meat, however, is only ordained, if you look at verse um, 12, for the use of man. It says nothing about our constitution or nature. So I think what we could be implying here is that meat, yes, it's ordained of God, he certainly is not commanding us not to partake of meat, and the church obviously has not made this part of the uh, standard of worthiness for the word of wisdom. Um, nevertheless, we know that Doctrine and Covenants 89 is wise counsel from our loving Heavenly Father, and our Savior himself said, is pleasing unto me that they, meaning meat, the flesh of beast and the fowls of air should not be used only in times of winter, cold, and famine. So anyways, that's why I describe my diet not as a vegan diet so much, because that could be an unhealthy vegan diet, but a whole food, plant-based diet. Okay. Well, I, I know that when you get into the issue of the word of wisdom, there's, of course, and, and the word of wisdom even mentions this. It's, it's adaptable. 
to people's circumstances and situations. So someone in Alaska may not have the same foods available to them as someone in Costa Rica, for example. So there are some adaptations and some, some let's call it wiggle room, because that's a fun word to use. Throughout the scriptures, though, we have seen ritual use of meat, you know, with animal sacrifice and things like that. Christ even fed the 5,000 with fish. And uh, with that being said, a, an easy critique is that there seems to be several instances where meat has been used with regularity and, in fact, in spiritual or ritual endorsement. How is that different? How is that not applicable, then, to what we read in the Word of Wisdom? Why, why, do, why can we not see these in practice or the fact that the church has cattle farms and, and produces meat, that these are things that we should try and abstain from? Oh, those are all great questions, and there's a lot of them, so I don't know if I can well, remember all of them as I tell it, so remind me. <laughs> you know, some of those things like animal sacrifice, you know, this is commanded of God. This is not a, a, a prescription for dietary practice. We know that throughout time, the Lord has given different dietary principles at different times to Adam and Eve. He gave them the, again, the herbs and the fruits as meat. That was their meat. Uh, we know that the children of Israel, he gave them particular dietary code. What's striking about um, DNC 89 is that this is particularly, um, the, as we see in verse 2 of DNC 89, this is the order and will of God in the temporal salvation of all saints in the last day. So we know that this is the dietary instructions for us. for us in our day. And there might be important reasons for that. Um, I have no problem that that the Savior ate fish and, and whatever else he ate. Let's remember the Savior also drank wine. That doesn't mean that it's good and proper and, and that we should do so in our day. So would you be willing to say then that this these latter days that the Word of Wisdom was referencing, um, that some—and I've heard this argument before, that part of the reason that they weren't to have meat was because of preservation methods, that it was hard to keep around— and so the reasons that it was okay in winter and famine was because they had it cold enough that it would refrigerate and preserve it. Wonderful. With that being said, with today's modern abilities to refrigerate and preserve food, does that change then an interpretation on the word of wisdom because that's that that part of it is no longer necessary? Wonderful question. And by the way, I alluded to a second article that I've written. Right. You would think that one article on DNC 8913 <laughs> would already be overkill, okay? <laughs> and it is. I already, already mentioned the fact I think this is a, a non-issue. Nevertheless, I have written a second, even lengthier article exclusively on DNC 8913 where I'm looking at all of the historical interpretations mm. of this particular verse and kind of looking at the strengths and weaknesses of each one. And as you mentioned, this is one, the idea of preservation of meats. Um, Nick, when do you think that people started figuring out how to preserve meats? Well, meat preservation in some forms was centuries ago, depending on how you would preserve it. Um, what was available to the saints in 1840s, I don't know. That's right. Okay, well, but thousands of, for thousands of years, people have been figuring out how to preserve meats or how to eat them safely in the summer. As you're aware, if you eat bad meat, you can get very sick. <laughs> I have. And in fact, you can die. Okay. <laughs> people are paying attention to this. Uh, people figure out how to eat their food so it can be safe insofar as they understand in the science. My assumption is that the saints in Joseph Smith's time were at least as aware of these methods as anyone else. You know, at the very least, you could kill an animal. 
and eat it right then and there in the summer and not get sick. There are multiple ways. So um, I will go into this a little bit more depth in the second article, but um, I, I personally investigation that particular theory. I don't see a lot of um, basis for that for that giving us um, liberty to then change the words of the Lord and assume that he doesn't mean what he says for us in our day today. Sure. Excellent. I guess if I was to address one more issue, and you probably bring this up in your forthcoming article, DNC 49, 18, verses 18 through 21, you actually bring this up in this current article, but it, it's often given by those who wish to justify the consumption of meat. It says, and whoso forbiddeth to abstain from meats that man should not eat the same is not ordained of God. For behold, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and that which cometh of the earth is ordained for the use of man, for food and for raiment, that he might have in abundance. But it is not given that one man should possess that which is above another, wherefore the world lieth in sin. And woe be unto man that sheddeth blood, or that wasteth flesh, and hath no need. I don't think that I've come to a full resolution, but I would like to point out, um, I, I think this fully accords with what the Lord is saying in DNC 89. He doesn't forbid the use of meats, right? Right. Or meats are ordained of God, but they should use, be used sparingly and only in times of need. And so we're not forbidding. He does not forbid the use of meat. I certainly wouldn't forbid the use of meats. I certainly would eat meat if it's necessary. Um, but we should use it sparingly in times of need. And as you state, verse 21, And woe be unto that man that sheddeth blood, or that wasteth flesh, and hath no need. Nick, let me point out one interesting thing about this verse, verse 18, really echoes 1 Timothy 4, 3, uh, says something similar. Um, but it's important to realize that the King James Version, the word meats means food. And it's often translated um, forbidding to eat certain foods. It doesn't mean meat. The word meat is more, often, use, yeah. is more often translated in King James uh, Bible as the word flesh. And so I'm not sure if that's the case here, but since it echoes so strongly, notice it says forbiddeth to abstain from meats. It uses the word meats just as it does in the New Testament. Meats again meaning food. And you wonder, does it mean the same here? We'll look at verse 19. For behold, the beast of the field and the fowls of the air and that which cometh of the earth Looks like it could be the definition that they're using for the word meats. That would be animal foods. That would be it's plant foods. all included. Foods. They're ordained. So what they're ordained for the use of man for food and for raiment that he might have an abundance. I do think the Lord wants us to have an abundance. And I do think the Lord would have no censure whatsoever should there be cases in our lives where we need meat to sustain life. Oh, yes, use it with thanksgiving. I know I would use it with thanksgiving. I don't know about you, Nick. But in the course of my life living here and— uh, America, where there's a grocery store on every corner. Yes. I'm sorry to say that I don't think I've ever partaken of meat because I was in need of going hungry unless I had that meat. There's always been more than enough plant foods uh, to satisfy need. And so um, for, for some saints in some parts of the world at some points of history, I'm absolutely sure that those things are important. I'm glad, I'm glad our bodies have adapted to be able to get sustenance from meat. But in our day, I think it's something that we can do without, not as a commandment, not as a commandment. This is wisdom. The church has not told us that we have to do this, but um, we're learning more and more about the blessings that come when we treat our bodies as temples of God, when we eat wholesome plant foods and we abstain from those things that are um, harmful to our bodies. And for us Latter-day Saints, there's an added bonus 
is pleasing to our Savior. There are many things I do that probably don't please our Savior. (laughs) I'm sorry to say I'm not perfect. I'm really glad that in this one way, I can do something that pleases the Savior. And I know that for some people, this might be a really dramatic thing. I mean, this is really extreme. What, give up meat, give up dairy, give up eggs? I thought the same thing. A few years ago, a doctor advised my mother to give up milk just for a certain amount of time. I thought to myself, you have got to be kidding. What? How could you eat? How could you live without dairy, without milk? That didn't make sense to me. Okay. It seems extreme, but consider this, Nick. Having a heart attack, having a stroke, being paralyzed, going through chemotherapy. These are also extreme experiences we have in life, unpleasant experiences. Really, is it that much harder to eat differently? And the secret of the whole thing is, like any of the any of the wisdom from God, we think, oh, why would I want to make Sabbath day holy, you know, give up all my playtime? All these different commandments, they seem so onerous and burdensome before you do them. When you do them, you suddenly realize, oh my heavens, the blessings. I had no idea whole food plant-based would be so delicious. I can testify to any listener, the food is wonderful. You're not giving up anything. The blessings are wonderful not just the physical blessings, but the spiritual blessings. And I can testify that spiritual blessings have been well worth any of the the cost or the inconvenience. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I am sure that there will still be those that uh, will look at other commas and look at other ways to interpret scriptures. And uh, But I thank you for your willingness to to look at something that that deep, that thoroughly. And I'm looking forward to your next article. Um, Again, Jane Birch is the author of Discovering the Word of Wisdom, Surprising Insights from a Whole Food, Plant-Based Perspective. And this article that we've been discussing in The Interpreter, entitled Questioning the Comma and Verse 13 of the Word of Wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate this time with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galletti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.